0: God, we need your spirit to be in our lives for us to ever understand truly who you are. So I pray that you would send your spirit among us this morning to uh, sharpen our minds and to open our hearts to receive your word as your word, as it truly is, so that we would know uh, you better and know what it means to live in relationship with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when you're a young adult, it's easy to have an unrealistic uh, picture of marriage, and this is, at least it was very true in the uh, kind of Christian culture, uh, Christian college subculture that, that I um, was in. Marriage was kind of seen as this kind of shining promised land out there somewhere. Uh, for single people, it was the promise of perfect companionship, someone who would always be there for you, who would meet every single need that you had. Uh, and they would be, you'd never be uh, lonely again, and presumably they wouldn't uh, require too much of you. Uh, in return, and and for those who were in uh, dating relationships, marriage was this thing to look forward to, often the future where it would it would add permanence and stability to that relationship and kind of put the seal on that. Not to mention the intimacy that would then be uh, able to be involved as well. But but if you think about marriage uh, as this place where every single desire you have is met, and not too much is really required of you, that you walk down the aisle into a life of happily ever after, where only good things happen all the time, and where nothing is ever hard, or challenging, if that's your view of marriage, then you're really going to struggle when you're faced with the reality of what marriage actually looks like. You're going to be devastated when you realize that this wonderful man that you've married cannot seem to put his dirty socks actually inside that laundry bin. You have told him three distinct times that it would be so helpful to you. You would feel more loved if he would just manage to put all of his laundry in the bin, and that would be helpful. Or if you, uh, you, you'll be so frustrated when you discover that this wonderful woman who you've married will not seem to be able to put the dishes the correct way in the dishwasher. You, you've explained it carefully, the plates go this way and, and not that way and not that way. This is the way that they go. And, and yet still, despite having those clear instructions on the right way to load a dishwasher, she just can't seem to do it the right way. Or one night you're going to go out to the movies and you're going to p- pick a movie to watch together. But it turns into this giant argument because you want to see this really good movie, and and she wants to see this really terrible movie that's not any good at all. And you're wondering, like, how could she have such bad taste in movies? What kind of a person have I married that that would want to watch that movie and not this one? It just doesn't make any sense. What have I done? And, of course, those are just the silly ones. And then there are the much more difficult and, and much... Uh, more heartbreaking things that come into a real-world marriage as well. But if you go in with unrealistic expectations that everything is going to be easy and nice, then the reality of marriage in the real world is going to be devastating. The same can be true of the Christian life. You can have an unrealistic expectation of what it means to be a Christian. You might think that God promises that everything is going to be perfect all of the time. You'll never have to worry or fear or have heartache or trouble. Maybe you've been told that God is the way to uh, prosperity and lots of money. Maybe you've been told that God is the way to better health, that God is the way to the American dream. Well, if you've been told that and if you believe that, then when the reality of life hits you in the face, you're going to be devastated. Your unrealistic expectations won't line up with the real world and its world, and it's going to challenge the very foundation of your belief. Habakkuk, this little book in the Old Testament that we've been looking at together the past month, is an excellent book to help us navigate these waters and to gain a more biblical understanding of what the Christian life really looks like. And this final chapter of the book that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see a posture of sober, mature faith, faith that will last in hard times. And the book of Habakkuk is a book about justice. Habakkuk the prophet is crying out for God to bring justice. But even at the same time, it's a book about wrestling with God through difficult times. And as we've seen over the past month, God is teaching Habakkuk a lesson. And as we look at Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that he has learned that lesson and how he responds in faith in light of that. So the text that we're looking at today is Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you haven't already done that. Uh, you can grab a pew Bible if you'd like, uh, and it's found on page 931 of the pew Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll do the whole chapter today. As we look at this text together, we're going to see two marks of a mature, sober faith that Habakkuk uh, demonstrates. The first mark is standing in awe when God shows up. The, the book of Habakkuk has gone like this. Habakkuk has raised his complaint. He said, God, please bring justice. There's too much violence, too much injustice. And God responds and says, I will bring justice. I'm raising up the evil Babylonians to punish. And Habakkuk responds again and says, well, God, that doesn't look like justice to me. How, how can you allow those who are wicked to swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? And then God responds again in chapter 2 saying, I will bring my ultimate justice. I, will, I am on the throne, and there will be a day when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And now Habakkuk is able to speak and offer a prayer from a more... Sober faith. Look at the first two verses here of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiginoth, which is probably a musical term. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk has heard from God. He has responded to both of his complaints, and and now Habakkuk is able to stand in awe and to remember who God is and what God does. And so he is going to wait for the day of God's salvation. And God's action is going to start with this magnificent display of power. Listen to how he describes this, beginning in verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, which is uh, the wilderness area around Sinai. So this is where God first showed up for the people of Israel. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains collapsed and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distrust, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. So notice how Habakkuk is drawing on the whole natural world to describe the glory of God. He says that God's glory covers the heavens from from one horizon to the other. The skies are just filled with the glory of God. God's glory, his his splendor is like the sunrise that's that's flashing in brilliance over the once darkened world until it fills the entire sky with light. God stands and the entire earth shakes. God looks and every people group is quaking and trembling in fear. Mountains that have been there forever are crumbling. Hills that have been there forever are collapsing. It's really an awe-inspiring picture of how powerful God is. And the awe of God continues with the description of his action then. Verse 8. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. At the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters." Again, the picture here is of immense power. He's continuing to use the, the created natural world to serve as a picture of how awesome God's approach is. So rivers and streams and the sea, they all pay attention. God easily forms the earth with rivers and ravines and valleys. And the biggest, most impressive natural Features bow to the infinitely more impressive God. The highest mountains and the ocean itself are in awe of God. And the sun and moon stand still. They join in at the approach of God. They stand still. This whole thing is showing the the amazing power of God's approach and, and leaves us with a picture of great awe. Maybe you've had experience like this. Think about the last time that you were outside during a powerful thunderstorm remember one of the storms we had this summer, our, our deck door was open and I, I saw the rain just starting gently and then the clouds started coming through and I watched as the, the wind picked up a little bit and we've got these giant trees in our backyard and they're just waving all over the place with the, the, the power of the wind coming through and then you, you hear a, a distant boom of thunder and then suddenly the rain pips, picks up and it's just bouncing hard off the deck. And then a flash of lightning closer and a bigger boom. And if you've been outside when, when this thunder is roaring, you know that it just reverberates in your chest. You just have the sense that there is enormous power here. Or maybe you've been at the, at the ocean and you've seen that the power of the waves and the power of... The water. I remember one time standing on the, the rocky coast of the Pacific Ocean and just watching the water crash into these giant rocks. And It would just swell and churn and it would rise up and then it would just throw down against these rocks and send spray everywhere. It was an amazing picture. You feel so small. You feel so powerless in the face of that kind of energy. And all of that is nothing compared to the glory of our God. The ocean itself that can rage and and slam against the coast like that. The ocean watches God in awe. The mountains that that stand way above us and and tower, they crumble and bow to our creator. He is awe-inspiring in his power. When he shows up, when he approaches, it is an amazing thing. It is breathtaking. Why this awe-inspiring vision of God showing up? What is God showing up to do? The answer is in verse 13. He says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. So this awe-inspiring approach of God, God showing up, is to rescue his own people. This picture of awe is a picture of a rescuer coming as a warrior to fight against the enemies of God's people and to make all things right. God is coming in awe-inspiring power to rescue his people from the terrible situation that they're in. When we encounter God, the natural response, the first response that we have is just to be in awe of him. When he shows up, it is an amazing thing. But in addition to standing in awe of God, there's also a commitment that God's people make. The second mark of mature faith is is to commit to praising God no matter what. So the first response is awe that God has acted in this way. We look back at verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. So it starts with awe, but that awe can very quickly turn to terror. Look at verse 16. This is Habakkuk's response to the awe-inspiring approach of God. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound decay, crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So Habakkuk has this strong, physically manifest response. His entire body is, is trembling and quaking in fear. His heart is pounding in his chest because he knows that what's going to happen is a terrifying kind of a thing. But even in the terror of what's about to happen, he says, I will wait patiently for God to act. And what's amazing here is he commits to doing this even when all of the signs of God's blessing are gone. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is a remarkable picture. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So every material blessing, everything that would mean that there's a sign of continuation of life today and some kind of hope for tomorrow, all of that is gone. No life, no signs of hope, and still the choice to praise God joyfully. I was caught off guard when I was working on this this week. I I can go to verse 16. I can understand the sentiment there saying, yes, my, my heart is pounding, my lips are quivering, but I will patiently wait for God to act. But then you get to verse 17, and it catches you off guard. If every single sign of hope is gone, he's not saying that he's going to wait patiently. He's not saying that he's going to trust or he's going to endure. What he says is that I will praise God joyfully. I will rejoice in my God. He's not just going to survive this. He's not just going to endure the hard times that are coming. He's jumping to his feet in joy to praise God. And that's before anything even gets better. There's a remarkable picture of faith. How can he do that? It's because he knows this, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And the musical notes for the director of music on my stringed instruments. He knows above everything else that God is his source of strength. That God is the one who causes him to have life and being. And so, as it's terrifying to see that God is going to act, and He's terrifying to consider the prospect of the near future, it's also reassuring because it means that God is on the move, and He knows that He can trust God no matter what, that God is His source of strength. He's the one who makes Him secure, and He knows that God will make things right. What Habakkuk realizes is that having God is more important than any kind of physical blessing having food in the pantry and, and money in the bank, having a paycheck coming, those are all really good things. Those are necessary for life. But even without any of that, if we have God, we can continue to rejoice. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's committing to praise God no matter what. So this is a, a demonstration of, of sober faith. It's not the kind of happy, easy faith that feeds off of an unrealistic expectation that everything is going to be nice and easy. It's the kind of sober, mature faith that's able to look at that empty pantry and to look at those empty fields and to look at that empty bank account and then look to God and say, He is enough for me. Now, this is not an easy thing. This is a very difficult thing. But it's a picture of faith that holds up in the real world. It's a faith that realizes that God himself is the most important thing. I saw an article from a Kenyan pastor uh, this past week who, who experienced this very thing. As a young man, someone had shared with him what they were calling the good news of Jesus, that Jesus will meet all of your needs and he will fulfill all of your dreams, that nothing uncomfortable ever comes from God and he wants you to be healthy and wealthy and if you have a strong enough faith, that will happen in your life. This is referred to as the prosperity gospel. Well, this man came to believe that. It sounded like a good thing. It was better than his alternative. And so he decided that he was going to believe this. And it it really became the, the belief of his heart, so much so that he actually started being a pastor proclaiming this same message. But then things started happening in his life that really crumbled the foundation of what he believed in. He and his wife lost their first child. And And they were devastated, and the only theological way they had of understanding what was happening here is that their faith must not be strong enough, or perhaps there was some kind of hidden sin in their background. And so they spent the next months repenting of of any possible sin they'd committed unintentionally or or maybe even their their parents or grandparents had committed in an attempt to kind of right this wrong in their life. And and they spent these months bolstering their faith and believing more and more of what what God could do. Well, they rejoiced. They they became pregnant again and and they welcomed home a baby boy and they were triumphant and rejoicing in this. But soon complications arose but but this time they were determined that that their faith would be strong enough and they would believe their son to live his wife shared a vision of of him uh, playing in the mud as a little boy and, and a vision of him preaching to thousands as an adult they were believing to have faith but it didn't work this little baby died too And at this, the man's faith just collapsed. He says, at one point, I screamed at God in disappointment that he'd failed me again. I had exercised tremendous faith. How could he let this happen? See, his whole theological belief structure had failed him, and it had shown to be empty. And so he continued to preach because it was his livelihood, and what else could he do? And what he admits, I I still hoped to become rich through believing and confessing and and visualizing it. But in the meantime, faking it until I made it. And then as he tells it, the Lord knocked me off my horse. He was asked to, to, to translate a message from a, a visiting Australian missionary couple as they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through his translation, they were able to proclaim what God had done, that, that God sent his own son at great cost to himself to accomplish the redemption of his people. And it's through faith in Jesus that we are made right with God that he has done everything for us. And as he was translating the message, it seemed strange to him. It seemed heretical even to him. And yet God started using this in his life to open his eyes to what the Bible really says about what Jesus has done and about what God really has done for us, about what God really promises. See, he'd already experienced the emptiness of his system of belief, but now suddenly he was able to see the truth that God really does love him, that that God has done everything for him, that God himself is the great treasure. He says this, the kingdom of God unfolded in my heart as I put my faith in the finished work of the Savior who became lovelier and more valuable to me than anything on earth. My desire for health and wealth lost its sway. I desired Jesus. That is the point. God himself is the great treasure. The gospel is not that you're going to get a bunch of nice things. The gospel is that you get God himself. He makes you his own child. This pastor realized the same thing that Habakkuk came to realize. God is more important than anything else. If our faith is going to stand in the midst of difficult times that will always come in the real world, we have to come to treasure God more than we treasure anything else the material blessings that we enjoy, those are good things. It's good when the fig tree buds, when the vines are filled with grapes, when the fields are lush with grain and and the pens are filled with sheep and the the cattle are filling up the whole barn. Those are good things. It's good when we have a roof over our head and we, we have a steady income. It's good when we have healthy kids. But if we have none of that and we still have God, we have enough. I don't know what your expectations of the Christian life are, but this passage reshapes them to fit the reality of what is actually true of God in a way that also makes sense in the real world. It calls us to recalibrate what our heart desires so that what we want more than anything else is God himself. And if you're going through hard times right now, if there are difficult things in your life, Habakkuk teaches us well how to deal with that. And it really is rooted in turning our attention to God himself and this doesn't minimize how difficult the things in your life are many of us right now are in the midst of very difficult things but what this does is it calls us to look to God in the face of all that don't continue to fix your gaze on what is in front of you fix your gaze on God himself when difficult times come that's when we have to come back to what we know is true of God that he is good that he is in control that his plan is better than our plan. And in the end, he sets all things right. Spend some time with the book of Habakkuk this week. How how does your situation in your life, how how does this book shed light on that situation right now? More than anything else, Habakkuk is directing us to God himself. And, And the New Testament writers do the same thing. Paul, in the midst of a bunch of severe trials is giving us the same message in 2 Corinthians 4:16. He says, "Therefore we do not lose heart though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all." So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is not just a message, though, for those who are in, facing difficult times today. This is also an important message for those who are uh, experiencing life well right now, or for whom life is good. Maybe you can't relate to the hard things that Habakkuk is talking about and the fear and the terror that he is expressing. But this is an important book because it checks our hearts. It makes us ask the question, am I worshiping God? Do I praise God? Am I thankful because he has given me stuff? Or am I praising him because of who he is? It's a heart check. Again, it's directing our attention to God himself and away from the stuff that's just in front of us. This is turning our attention to God himself and away from the stuff. No matter what life situation we are in, it's so important for us to understand that God is more valuable than anything else whether life is good and you feel God's blessing in, in all sorts of different ways or where life is difficult and, and you're straining to just keep going, God is enough for you. God is your treasure. He is your portion. Learn this lesson well now before the hard times come because it's going to pre- uh, prepare you to be able to face them well. Hard times will come and you need to know now that God is worth it, that God is absolutely secure no matter how what life brings. So this week, I want you to be considering, where is my source of security? What makes me feel like I am safe? And look at these last verses again. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Here's what we come to learn this morning. No matter what happens, we make the choice to rejoice in God. God is so good. He is the one who is our strength. He is the one who makes our feet like the feet of a deer. He is the one who enables us to walk in the highest places. He is our source of security. He is our treasure. No matter what life brings, we make the choice to rejoice and to praise Him. May God in his mercy uphold us so that, that is true of us. Please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for books like Habakkuk that remind us of the reality of hard things and that in the midst of those hard things point us beyond what we can see to what is unseen, that you are on the throne. You are sovereign in control over everything and your plan is good and your love for your people is unending. I pray that we would trust you more than anything else, now and always. In Jesus' name, amen.